Hey everyone, it's me, Ben Blacker, the moderator and the creator of this thing. Um, Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Uh, I just wanted to fill you in on a couple of interesting opportunities for writers. Uh, The most important and the coolest by far uh, is this one. It's the Michelangelo Screenwriting Program. Um, My writing partner, Ben Acker, and I have been invited to teach at this program which takes a handful of students every year. Uh, It's pretty competitive. Uh, There's room for, I think, 10 or 14 students to come to Italy and we'll workshop your screenplays, your TV specs, uh, your comic book scripts, whatever you have. Uh, We'll do kind of an intensive workshopping of these things along with some kind of more structured classes Um, and you'll come out with something that you should be ready to show, whether it's to get you an agent or to just go sell the goddamn thing. Um, It's the Michelangelo Screenwriting Program. It's in June, but registration is running right now, Uh, and it's a a really cool thing. Um, I hope you guys will at least check it out. Go to michelangelosscreenwriting.com. Michelangelo spelled the way you think it is. Uh, com. Uh, check out the program. Acker and I worked on that and, you know, we're, we're, uh, we also want to know what you guys want to do once you sign up, you know, we can kind of work things around to make it, uh, how everybody wants it. But, uh, please check that out. com. The other thing is, uh, I think there, as of this podcast, there are a few more days to enter the Austin TV festival pitch competition, which is uh, exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Go to atxfestival.com and check that out. Um, And, you know, you you pitch stuff and they'll choose the winners and then you pitch in front of uh, some for-real TV creators like Bill Lawrence and Liz Tegelar and some other really cool people who have all appeared on this panel for the most part. Um, so check out that ATX pitch competition. It's at atxfestival.com. There are some fun videos on there, too, with some tips about pitching. Um, I think that is all, other than to say thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, this was a fun one. And if you like the podcast, please re- leave a review on iTunes. I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm going to go to sleep now. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. With a background as an actor and performer, our first panelist wrote, directed, and starred in the feature film It's About Time. His writing credits include Robot Chicken, and he's the creator of Mad, the animated sketch show on Cartoon Network based upon the magazine of the same name. Please welcome Kevin Shinnick. Hi, Kevin. So ominous. I'm part of a firing squad here. Yeah. Hello. Hello. All right, perfect. 
having worked her way up through the ranks from writer's assistant on Christopher Lloyd and Steve Levitan's Back to You, our next panelist's other credits include Do Not Disturb and Family Guy. She is currently executive story editor on Modern Family. Please welcome Elaine Coe. Our final panelist has a background that includes the Harvard Lampoon, stand-up comedy, a stint on punk writing on the Jonathan Katz-created Raising Dad, and acting roles in Knocked Up and Inglorious Bastards, among others, including NBC's The Office, which he has been with from the very beginning as actor and writer and producer, and recently as director as well. Uh, he's also a very nice guy. Please welcome B.J. Novak. Hi. Hello. You can speak into the microphone. <laughs> oh, we do lots of edits on this, so <laughs> just make an edit mark if there's something you want taken out. Okay. Um, Cursing? No? Cursing's okay. All right, good. Oh, we're explicit. Can way. I make a little chime sound if I want you to definitely include something? Absolutely. <laughs> just also to turn the page. For the highlight reel? Yes. <laughs> um, let's jump right into it. And VJ, I want to start with you. Um, I... I We'll, we'll get into your biographies in a minute, but I want to ask the most pressing questions that I have for each of okay. you. Um, tell me about how it is working on The Office right now. Um, uh, you guys are in your last season. Yes, I'm not there full-time right now. But you are consulting, right? Uh, or something? Not even. I drop oh, by really? now and then. No kidding. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not really involved. Who's running the show right now? Greg Daniels is running the show, and, and Brent Forrester and Dan Sterling mm-hmm. are sort of his number twos. But you've been there sort of in these... I've been there more than anyone, yeah. (laughs) And especially, you know, as we're talking about these final few seasons, kind of zeroing in to an ending on this, um, is there a tenor in the room, or has there been a tenor in the room that we have to tell these certain stories, or there are things we'd like to get to, or, you know, how do you guys approach the end of a series? Well, I I don't know exactly how it's going this year, but I know that... um, I can make some assumptions based on how the final season of Michael Scott went. I think there is a, every season begins with a great deal of optimism and excitement and what we call a blue sky uh, zone. Of That's my favorite time each year. It's the time when you love being a writer on a TV show. And that's when anything can happen. You don't have to solve any problems, break any complicated aspect of a story. It doesn't matter if something contradicts with something else. What if Michael does this? What if Dwight does that? Jim and Pam should go... You know, anything can, can happen. And all they... All that happens is they become index cards on the wall mm-hmm. as soon as you say them, like magic. And, and there's, it, it just looks like the best season ever. So I think approaching the final Michael Scott season, there was a lot of what are the greatest hits that we haven't done with Michael Scott. And I'm sure that that is a big factor of this year, too, in that blue sky period. What are the greatest hits? Uh, what do we want to do with every character? And when you guys were exploring those things, you know, once you get through that blue sky period, how do things get weeded out and how do you kind of get to the decisions for what episodes actually happen, which there, greatest hits are chosen. There's sort of a circular collective process of talking and thinking, and the ones that you can't let go of just naturally present themselves. They naturally just float to the top. The ones you just keep talking about become apparent. And then you, you might narrow it down to the, the 15 or 20 that you can't stop talking about, and then, then you might decide more strategically these eight are great stories to tell. Mm-hmm. These two sound expensive. These two sound uh, logically inconsistent. Mm-hmm. This one, the actor will never go for. <laughs> and now we have the first six. You that's, know, you know, th- that's something that actually hasn't come up before. This idea of 
a plot or a concept the actor won't go for. Uh, you know, you guys have a lot of heavy hitters on that show, as you do, you know, on the other shows you've mm-hmm. worked on. Uh, how much do you have to consider that in the room? Well, most actors don't have enough power to refuse to do something, sure. but <laughs> the ones that do, you need to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as a writer and an actor, I feel that I understand both sides very well. The actor's job is to protect the character and present a character they know how to play. They can put their heart into playing. They're proud to play. They can play to the top of their uh, passion. Mm -hmm. And when something... The writer has these fantasies of, of a line quoted for all time because it was in the mouth of Michael Scott. Um... Often, not always, but often, that, that's when you're headed for a conflict. Mm-hmm. When you have a great line you want Michael to say or Dwight to say, maybe you didn't even think of it for them, but you want to put it in their mouth. And they are thinking of their character in this other way. Now, I think both observing it and experiencing it, ego clouds that uh, negatively mm-hmm. very, on both sides, very often. Imagine. Yes, I'm talking on the actor side. The, the fantasy of being likable in public uh, is something that prevents actors a lot from doing things that would be funny and true. <laughs> However, they're also often right. Actor, the writers often accuse the actors of that mm-hmm. to themselves. Oh, he just wants to be likable. She just wants to you know, seem sweet in every moment. And often, that, often they have a point the writers don't acknowledge, which is that the character is a beloved three-dimensional creation, and they say that, and they're not the same person anymore. And that actor can't play that person fully because a line is just for the sake of a joke. And I think The Office made that mistake a lot, actually. Forcing characters to say things for the sake of a joke or a scene that over time damaged the um, not just likability but the three-dimensionality of the actor. Can you think of anything specific? I've noticed um, uh, certain characters be mean uh, to one another because you can always get a, a laugh in that zone and uh, I think that that damaged some of the characters. I think some characters, I think they're okay, they survived, but uh, Stanley and Phyllis speaking candidly, I think um, often would not often, but sometimes would say something that got a laugh in the moment but do not help you see this office as a group of real human beings who are acting out of their flaws, not acting out of, you know, just having a line to say. And I think that was a, a mistake. I think that was, that was negative. And I think, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing it's good when an actor protects against. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. And again, it's not something that's come up here. And Elaine, this is something I imagine you must deal with as well. I mean, speaking of heavy hitter casts, uh, on Modern Family, tell us about you know walking that line. I you know I, I think the meanness comedy uh, doesn't quite happen on there, but there is you know it could become cartoony. You know, there's the threat of them becoming caricatures, and how do you keep yeah. them grounded? What are the conversations that go on in the room? Um, well, we definitely have, um, especially you know my my showrunner Chris. He's very he's always on guard against like um, stories where all our characters are snarking at each other too much or just being mean to each other. And you know, I think um, he's always kind of driving home that idea. At the end of the day, this is a family that truly loves each other, and that's why people kind of tune in. So he's, you know, so I think that that kind of safeguarding against that is something that we've all now come to do, all the writers. Um, As far as, like, stories or even jokes that our actors 
um, haven't felt comfortable with. I can't really think of a time where any actor said, no, I'm not doing that. I think it... Um, I think the most it's ever gotten to is maybe an actor pulling a showrunner aside and saying, I don't know if this is something my character should or would say or do, you know? Um, and then there's either adjustment or there, or there isn't, you know? Because um, at the end of the day, it's, a, it's Steve and Chris's show, you know? But, um, but yeah, we haven't run up against anything like that yet. It's only season three, so. But there must be talk about, you know, the balance between again keeping them human you know you're you're yeah. dressing this guy as a clown <laughs> yeah. um and there's the threat there that this could become over the top or or not quite realized but you guys do a great job of keeping them as very real characters um even thanks. even yeah. in writing a script how do you approach that uh, um, and skirt that line. You know, it's hard like, because it's so easy to go broad, especially with a character like Cameron, you know? Like, he's so theatrical and he's so big. It's really easy to, um, yeah, to kind of play into those um, cartoonish qualities. Um, so, I don't know. I guess we just try to keep each other in check in the room with, you know, with every joke. You know, something... You know, something could be hilarious, but if it's if it's like, well, what world are we in? Then more often than not, we just won't put it in the script. You know, um, and I guess that's another thing um, that we really try to safeguard against is um, is we really try to keep the characters as real as possible. Um, I don't know that we're always successful, but we try. You know, we, we, we really do try. We're, you know, we're always kind of asking ourselves certain questions in the room, and um, one of them is, what's the real here? You know, what would a real human person, human being do in this situation? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we're not always, we don't always um, stick to those things, but we try. But, the, yeah, the fact that you guys are aware of it, uh, you know, shows on screen, I think. Um, I hope so. I mean, yeah, it's it's hard too because shows that I tend to like, um, just as a viewer, are the ones that are a little bit more out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's definitely something that um, that I have to force myself to be conscious of. I think as a writer. Well, yeah. I want to come back to that in a minute. Uh, ben, what am I doing here? Everything I do is cartoony. <laughs> let's talk about it. Uh, let's get into it. Um, I, I'm really curious about you know you're running Mad, right? Which is uh, the animated sketch show on Cartoon Network, which a lot of people don't know exists, including <laughs> BJ, and I'm sure Elaine is trying to figure out what the hell we're talking about. Um, but tell me about you know, you. Well, we'll get to this in a minute. Tell me about <laughs> tell me about your childhood. Well, I want to. I, I want to run this by these guys too. I want to make it. Okay. So it's something all of you can answer. But tell me about you know putting your personality and your sense of humor into this show, which is taken. You know, it's based on the magazine, right? But it's certainly its own thing. Uh, where do where's Kevin in it? You know, Kevin is all over this show, yeah. but mostly because of budgetary reasons. <laughs> uh, no joke. I you know I'm I have like a three writers under me, but I, I I'm part of writing it. I produce it. I cast it. I voice direct it. If there's time, I you know I, I serve craft services. Whatever whatever it takes over there, they'll have me do. But as a result of that. Um, you know, in the very beginning, people weigh in, networks weigh in. People are like, all right, this has got to be important. We want to make this the show that it is. But then when we prove what we can do, they kind of say, all right, you seem... In fact, the network said to me one time, like, I don't agree with a lot of the things you're doing, but it, the ratings are great, so keep it up. So we were like, fantastic. So, you know, as a result, you know, I, I don't think you can help when it's as, as direct and as small a staff as I'm working with. Um, I don't think you can help but have... Uh, your stamp all over it because that's who you are and at the end of the day I'm sure 
we all do it. You know, I want to I wanna see what I would find funny as an audience member. So I'm going to tailor make my stuff to stuff that makes me laugh. And I'm hoping that everybody else is laughing as well. But it starts with us in the writer's room. You know, um, we want it to be funny. Now, our show, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I also write on Robot Chicken, and that's a much more blue and obscene show. Um, so the idea was they wanted us to have a, a show that could air in prime time that was like Robot Chicken. Um, so we moved there. So, you know, we figure everybody discovers Mad Magazine somewhere around the ages of like 8 and 15. So that's the target demographic for that show. But I, I do. I want the show to be funny for everybody. And if it's a family show, you know, I have a daughter now, and it's like, I don't want to sit through half this crap. But it's like, you know, you can see the funny colors and stuff like that. But to get a show where you have jokes for adults and for the younger audience, you know, I think that's where the sweet spot we went for. And so hopefully, you know, we nailed it. But, but as a result, like I'm saying, I think the answer to your question is because it's such a small crew, I don't think I can help but put my scent all over it, if you will. <laughs> I will not. Um, just to, to follow up, you know, the, the network said it's not quite what they expected or right. wanted. How is it different? How is your take on Mad the Show different from what they want? I think exactly what I was saying about uh, riding the line between kids and adults. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, someone said to me in the initial meeting, don't, don't, you don't have to be clever. And I was like, I, I want to be clever. I want this to be funny on many levels, you know? And so, like, I'll pick a show, you know, like, say we did the Jersey Shore or something like that. And they're like, oh, I don't know if kids get And it's like, it's, it's a cultural icon now, whether you watch it or not. So I think it's the most pushback we got was what I wanted to include. And now that we're going into our fourth season, it's like, and this show is so topical. I, no joke, we haven't had a hiatus since I started this in November of 2009. Um, because of that, you know, uh, we we get we have to do almost every show that's out there. So they start to lay their hands off, like, all right, well, do what you need to do. And like I said, it seemed to work, so they seem to be hands off now. Thank God. That's great. Uh, and I want to follow up in a minute just on the nuts and bolts of you know how you you accomplish all of these things um, and so many episodes per year too. But uh, on the same question, uh, BJ, tell us about working really on anything that you've worked on uh, as a writer and putting yourself in that. I mean, I imagine obviously as a stand-up. That's your voice. Um, but when you're writing someone else's creation, how do you get BJ in there? Uh, you mean my, my voice as a writer, not as an actor, right? Your, yeah, your voice as a writer, your point of view as a person. I think it comes, it comes naturally if you're really working at the top of your own inspiration. If you're really writing what... what you're not saving anything for the, the spec you're going to write next or the novel that is really going <laughs> to that is really going to make your name. If you're really putting everything into it, you're probably raiding your brain for observations that you've made to friends that you wondered why you've never seen before mm-hmm. said because they seem to be pretty clever <laughs> or um, philosophies that you've had and ways to express them that you might have caught yourself thinking or saying that might be right. You, you raid your own brain. Um, and, and it can't help but and you, that can't page. help but be your yeah. voice. I, I think. Can you think of specifics? Um, can I think of and specifics? Elaine? I'm, I'm coming to you next. So. Mm. She has her thinking face on. <laughs> you know, I, I don't. This isn't my example, but um, I, <laughs> I remember an episode of The Office that Mindy wrote, where um, Dwight is at the at the fridge in the kitchen at the top of a scene. And he needs to be saying something while uh, another character crosses in. Mm-hmm. And Mindy had him say, he's throwing magnets 
into the garbage can. And he said, you know, it's like magnets shaped like a, like a house and like a steel mill or whatever. And he says, magnets are interesting enough. They don't need to be tarted up. <laughs> and like, I can only imagine that came from Mindy's brain. So it's a brilliant thing. And it's so Dwight. But no other writer would have written it for Dwight. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that personal point of view can just come down to a s- kind of humor, you know, or the kind of thing you yeah. find funny. Uh, yeah, or how I, far you'll reach for something funny. Yeah. You know, I think a more elementary writer would have gone for a more obvious Dwight area. But just the ambition of thinking so conceptually. <laughs> what, what would be a surprise about Dwight that would make sense to us? That alone is, is sort of her voice in that instance. Interesting. Uh, and we'll talk about that kind of uh, your individual approaches to comedy and you know what you guys think is funny in a minute but uh, Elaine the same question you know in tackling you've, you've done a, a number of scripts now for Modern Family mm-hmm. um, and in tackling these how do you put yourself in it or do you you know is that the job of the writer on a show that you're not running um, I definitely think I mean I hope I'm putting myself into these scripts you're you know you you're sitting there for however long it is and you're writing a draft and um yeah, I think even though this is obviously a show that someone else created, um, I've I've come to feel some sense of ownership over the show and the characters, and um, I'm I just try to trust that I'm there because of my voice, you know, and not not so that I can hide my voice and and just try to mimic, you know, what my bosses have created. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in general. Um, I sort of approach it like, uh, right now I'm the only female on staff, and so I try to bring, obviously, a female voice to the show. Um, but it's also, you know, um, I'm the only non-white male, uh, non-white in general <laughs> on staff. Uh, so, you know, obviously I don't sit there and just pitch, like, Asian jokes. That, <laughs> that wouldn't work. Um, but I hope that just having had a different background and a different... You know, upbringing just makes my voice a little different than maybe the other voices in the room. Not to say that they all have the same voice, obviously. You know, but um, but yeah, I mean, I just you know, I I try not to, um, you know, I don't want to just become the voice that I think they want me to be. You know, like it's funny too. Like sometimes I'm sorry, no, 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 no. No. like I'm sitting in that room and it's. Um, Do they want you to only write for that baby? Yeah, really. <laughs> They brought me on to, to be Lily, the voice of Lily, which I do at the table reads, by the way, which you, you are right to be offended by that. That's not, it's not, it's not okay. Um, but yeah, no, but like sometimes I'm sitting in that room and it's, you know, it's like, this is, this is very much a writer's room thing, but it's like 10 people suddenly busting out like Woody Allen impersonations. You know, like I don't do a Woody Allen. I'm never going to do, you know, like you could, maybe you I could do, I could do a Woody I, Allen. Yeah, I could do maybe a good sue me, probably, but I'm not, like, that's just not, you know, ever who I'm going to be, and if I were to try to be that, I just, I don't think it would work. So, so Do you you feel there is a pressure on you? I mean, I didn't realize you were the only woman in the room. Uh Is there a pressure on you to represent the female characters on the show? Um, A a pressure from the outside, you mean, or in the room? From within the room. Um, Not really. I mean, for better or worse, it's, you know, we've kind of done away with you're a guy, you're a girl. I mean, um, there, there are definitely times when, you know, 
um, I feel a certain sense of responsibility to like speak up if I feel like that's not something I would love for a woman to do, you know. And um, but I'm not the only one who does it. I mean, there are male writers on staff who will do the same thing. Um, so yeah. So I guess I feel a you know a, a sense of responsibility to a certain extent. But I I feel that maybe for hopefully for all our characters and not just you know. But anyway. Um, Kevin, let's talk about. As I said, the nuts and bolts of putting Mad together. You have basically no staff. But yeah, not basically. That's, <laughs> that's literally it. You have a couple of writers and right, you. Right, exactly. Um, how do you pull this thing together? How many episodes do you do a season? Um, 26 episodes a season. And the answer to your early question is, I have no idea how we do it. What, is, what does a day look like for you guys? You know, and um, is it always, are you always in production? Yes, we're always in production. The thing that's different about Mad than most shows or most animated shows is we do try to be topical. So it's kind of like a South Park feel where I will essentially, I could write something today and we could have it on the air as an episode in like six weeks, as a sketch in like two weeks. You know what I mean? It's, it's that quick. Um, as a result... You know, I, I break it down in terms of the week. Um, you know, Mondays, I'm, I'm getting the episode ready for the mix on Tuesday. On Tuesday, I'm in the mix. On Wednesday, all day, I'm recording, and I do a lot of the voices. Thursday, I'm assembling the next episode. And Friday, you know, it's, it's just a cycle. And on top of that, I'm writing it. So, and giving notes on the stuff that's coming through the pipeline. And that's how I look at it, really, because it's, I'm in a, in a, in a rare occasion where I'm not writing episodes. I'm writing sketches. And I put them all in a giant well. And then when I'm, I'm putting an episode together, I sit with the editor and think, I know what I want every episode to have. Like the magazine, I want to have a movie parody, a TV parody, one commercial, one, you know, two of these, blah, blah, blah. So when I have that formula, I go to my well and see what works the best or what, you know, what complements each other. And that literally has been going on for forever and um, you know we've gotten celebrity voices we've got it's so funny because we had Rico Rodriguez in for our Halloween episode yeah he was he was what a diva jeez no no he was a sweetheart he was sweetheart he was great Um, but we you know we had Billy D. Williams come in to do Lando you know and things like that it was just it was so so great that man I you know he walks in you think oh he's old now you know and you think god and you try and sit him in front of his chair and then he opens his mouth and he is the smoothest cat around <laughs> it's like wow you still have it um, so you know in many ways um, it's difficult because of that topical aspect and because we prove we can do it the network wants them quicker and it was kind of like geez we, we are killing our animators but and even the animators said to me I don't think this could work when we first started it and I think it, what it boils down to is I once the sketches are written they then go and I record them all and I do all the voices for everything I lay down the entire scratch so that the animators can start animating to it so that by the time we get into the record booth, the actors are basically doing ADR, which is putting their voice over my voice. They just have to keep the same timing. Um, and then we just take it from there. So that's the biggest difference from most animated shows, um, you know, is that we are constantly moving and, and at that fast pace. Interesting. Um, BJ, let's go back to you, and we're going to kind of work backwards here. Um, but tell us about, you, you were there at the office from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about helping to get that show on its feet. And finding its feet, too, for that matter. Um, well, I was part of a very small staff hired from the outset. Um, 
I was the only writer there besides Greg Daniels on the pilot because I was hired as an actor, so I wasn't officially a writer. But I wrote a couple lines that made it in the pilot. Uh, he knocked on my trailer door and asked me for some alts, and, and I'm proud to say they're in there. Um, do, you, do you remember what they were? Yeah. Um, what were they? He says about he introduces Pam to the camera and says, if you think she's cute now, you should have seen her a couple years ago, <laughs> which he thinks is a compliment. Um, and one or two other lines, too. Um, but it was, it was mainly the British pilot script, and then Greg had done a pass on it, and then I threw in a couple extra lines. But it was basically that. It was, it was pretty stable. And then after that pilot, I was part of a very small staff, Mindy Kaling, Paul Lieberstein, who plays Toby, Mike Schur, who, went on, who plays Moe's, and went on to create Parks and Recreation. And um, that was it. Just us five with Greg. And we wrote the whole first season. How, um, how many episodes were that? Just six episodes, five more episodes. Uh, and tell me about, you know, sort of discovering Michael Scott's voice. Because, uh, again, you were translating it in that pilot, yeah. and it was a little rougher, you know. Yeah, I, I, it helped to see him in, in real life. I mean, I think we wrote a lot of the first season, because um, we wrote the first season before we filmed it. So it was really um, still kind of... I was still kind of picturing the British office mm-hmm. and writing for an American version right. of him. Um, I think it, it re- we really found Michael Scott in season two mm-hmm. on purpose. And what, that's what I was going to ask. It was definitely something you guys realized. Yeah, the ratings were low and the, um, and the feedback was that he was very abrasive. Mm-hmm. And 40-Year-Old Virgin had just come out and he was hilarious in it and extremely likable. So what didn't seem to be a conflict between making him likable and making him funny. And um, Greg specifically told us, I want, I want two out of every three stories to have an upbeat ending. The, the third one can be for you, Paul, because Paul <laughs> loves <laughs> negative uh, <laughs> things. Uh, he, he said two of the three, two of every three should be, have a positive ending. And... and I forget what he said about Michael, but it was basically we should see where he's coming from. And did you guys, even we should his, see how lonely he is. Even his look got softer. Didn't he? he had like the grease back hair at first, yeah. and then he you know, looked more like... I don't know if that came from him or makeup or Greg or what. Right. I just noticed it. Right. But of course. Was the staff still that fairly small size in the second season? Second season, we added Lee Eisenberg and Gene Sipnitsky okay. and Jennifer Salata. And uh-huh. a couple people consulted a couple days a week. But you, it was, and Justin Spitzer. So the, the three or four pretty big writers for we our show. We were kind of around for a while. Too. Yeah, they, all of them they, around for a long time. So that was kind of the group that shepherded the, the show into its uh, heyday. Yeah. Um, do you recall an episode or even piece of an episode that you had a fairly heavy authorial hand in? In those early years? Yeah, a lot of them. I was very involved then. Uh, so tell us a little bit about shaping that and, you know, just, just the process, how, how the show came together and, you know, specifically how maybe you took a story from pitch to the final. Um, well, I wrote the first original episode, Diversity Day, after the pilot, and it was based on my experiences in Newton, Massachusetts, <laughs> where we both uh, uh, grew up, and I believe it was called Diversity Day there, which is why... It was called that in the show. And, and um, I, I just remembered uh, the spirit of it was focusing so hard on proving that you are uh, enlightened and colorblind. Uh, and this character is not good at that, not that smart, um, tripping over things. I don't really remember the exact question. Where does it 
How did it happen? I don't know. <laughs> I, I tried to write it as funny as I could. I'm curious, though. I didn't realize you had written that first original on. Was there a lot of pressure on the first original story for the series? No, uh, because we didn't write them like that. It, it just oh. it ended up being the first one. But I got Diversity Today, and Mindy got Hot Girl, and oh. Paul got Healthcare, and Mike got uh, Mike got The Alliance. It was called. So coming out of those first few weeks of the alliance was my idea. I said Dwight should say Jim should say to Dwight, "Will you form an alliance with me?" Or Dwight should say to Jim, "Will you form an alliance with me?" And Jim says yes without knowing what it is. <laughs> and so you know that that idea came from me, and Mike wrote it. And then were the characters? I don't know very, where Mike came from. Were the characters very clear to you at that point? I mean, that seems like such an they were really clear thing now. They were really clear because of the British. Oh really? Yeah, I mean, but I mean that that Dwight character is very different from the the corollary character on the British show. Um, that's true. I guess that we had seen the pilot. He had, the direction he had taken it in. All right. All right. Um, Elaine, let's talk about comedy. All right. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. I have this niche question, and she gets the whole field. Anything you want to tell us about comedy? Wow. Um, no, I'm curious about, uh, you know, what is the comedy that you were into growing up? What, we'll get back to you. What is the stuff that was inspiring you? Uh, and what is the stuff even now that, you know, you take with you? You know, you were saying you find a lot of the stuff that is not Modern Family very uh-huh. funny and that's sort of outside of what Modern Family does. Um, what is that stuff? And how do you get to do that in your own life? Um I, I don't right now, only because I don't really have the mental energy at the end of the day to think of anything but what I'm working on. Um, but, um, you know, shows that inspired me, I guess, to be a writer, shows like The Office. The Office is actually the spec. I, I wrote a spec office that got me my job what on this it? show. It was called Earth Day. So, I don't know. It was Did just, I have a good part? You did. No, you know, but actually, you did. You had lines in it, but you, it was when you were, sent, like, shipped off to corporate, uh-huh. so you had a, you had a speakerphone call with Dwight All and right. Michael, but you had some good jokes, I, I wish thought. wish we'd done it, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, Someone's writing for me. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and Arrested Development was huge for me, um... Third. All the shows that get canceled are the ones we like. I guess, although it's coming Usually. back. I'm excited about it. Yeah, 30 Rock. I yeah. mean, all these shows that are, I'm sure for everyone, anyone who, you know, is of this, I guess, generation, I hate that word. But yeah, I mean, all those shows were kind of, those are the shows that I watch at home and think, oh my God, if I could ever think of you know any of the things that these things that these people are thinking of that would be a dream for me. Like if I could ever get to that point, you know, and yeah, it's so do you remember uh, at what age or if there was a, you know, a specific show or writer or something that made you say, oh, somebody makes these things, someone puts these words down, and then these funny people say them? Not really. I feel like I, I don't even really know when I discovered that being a TV writer is a thing you could do. Um, I'm always curious about that, and I'll, I'll want to know from you guys too. But it's it is a thing because it's not part of our daily lives when we're you know right young, and especially if you have no connection to it, which I didn't growing up. I didn't know anybody even close to the business, so 
Um, I, you know, when I first started out, after college, I wanted to actually, like, I wanted to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a joke, but... Um, <laughs> so I wanted to go to New York and work for a publishing company and all that stuff. And then that didn't work out. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't afford to live out there. Nothing really panned out. And then I just found myself in television, like, on the corporate side for a little bit. And then from there, I just... It, it was just kind of what became available to me, like, what opportunities. And then... Um, you know, I remember the first time I saw a writer's room, it was, a, it was on that 70s show, and I just thought it was amazing that people just sat in there and wrote stuff that people said on TV, you know? Um, but I think I had an idea, I'm sure, before then, that this was a job that, that hopefully I could some, but someday get. But it wasn't get. something you were specifically chasing. What were you doing on the that? other side, of, uh, on the corporate side? I was doing... Like basically the most boring thing you're doing research, which is like audience ratings research. So it was a lot of numbers, and it was not creative at all. Um, but I was always kind of keeping an eye out for any opportunities in production, and and I eventually got to um, move over to production as a PA, which was huge for me. What that was, was that on? That was on that seventy show. Oh, okay. Yeah, I basically stalked the people there, and eventually like convinced them to just give me a job there. Stalking so, works, people. It yeah. does. Stalking works. It's kind of the only thing that works. I think <laughs> you have to really. <laughs> That's not true. But BJ yeah, agrees. you. Uh... BJ is nodding his head no, vigorously. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so how did you segue into writing? Because I saw, I mean, your first credit on IMDb, anyway, was uh-huh. as, a, as a writer's assistant. Yeah. Um, so I, I did a... St- Talk about stalking. <laughs> yeah, really. Big fan. What's your Facebook profile picture? <laughs> it's cute. It's super cute. See? Um, I'm not on Facebook. Um, he, so he, was, he was talking about his. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about super cute. Check it out. Um, I what was the question? Uh, How did I on Instagram? I was, uh, what, you spend what, a lot of time in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was uh, right. I was a PA, and then I went on to be a PA um, on a pilot called Action News, which became Back to You. It was the Kelsey Grammer Patricia Heaton pilot, and I was really, I really wanted to get on that show because it was the only show that had it had a thirteen episode order like out of the gate. So I'm like, I have to get on that show, and I just like I call the Fox lot operator every day. I just cold called. Every day, three six nine and one thousand. I was like, "Is there an office for action news?" No, no, no. And and then one day, I think it was like probably after six weeks of calling, was like, "There is an office," and he just transferred me in. Weirdly, it was crazy. And weirdly, I know this is what I'm talking about. But weirdly, the associate producer answered and was swamped that day because it was the first day they had the office up, and he didn't have any help. And he was like, "Can you come in?" And I was like, "Yeah." And and. Um, so I was a PA on that pilot, and then when you know when they went into pre-production, Steve Levitan, who you know, so Steve and Chris, who created Modern Family, also created that show. Um, they were in need of a second writer's assistant, and he, I think it was like three weeks in, he was like, "Is that something you want to do?" And it was again, it was like, "Yeah, are you kidding? That's why I'm here." You know, so um, so that afternoon I was in the room, and it was, you know, it was. Crazy and it was really nerve-wracking. It was really were, nerve-wracking. Were you seeing yourself as a writer at that point? Like, when did you even write this office spec that you're talking about? Um, I wrote that spec, I think, probably while I was a writer's assistant. It was my the second office spec I had written. I'd written a bunch just kind of on my own, just for fun, um, or not for fun, for practice. It's not for fun. I'm <laughs> it's sorry. never, um, fun. It's never, never fun. fun. It was for practice. Yeah. So, um, but that, yeah, this particular office I wrote shortly before I got my first staff job. 
So, yeah. And then what was the first uh, script you were given? Did you get to write something as a writer's assistant on that show? No, I was not. The first, <laughs> Actually, the first script I've ever had produced was A Modern Family. Oh, really? So that was... What were you on yeah. in between those? I was on Family, on Family Guy for a season, yeah. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, Kevin, let's talk about your uh, entry into the business. God, you um, have a, a background as a performer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was an actor, or am an actor, I should say, because I still, I still do it. But um, I did a lot of Broadway theater. Um, and, you know, I had the good fortune of also becoming very good friends with Tony Randall. And I can't see the age from these lights are my eyes. But <laughs> no, if no one here knows who that is. I know, exactly. That's a sad thing. But, um, you know, I also grew up... You know, loving just classic shows like, you know, uh, The Odd Couple and Happy Days. And, you know, Gary Marshall was a big part of all of that. And getting to know Tony um, was twofold. He gave me something which, at the right time in my career when I was very young, that helped me go on, which is basically the confidence to know that I had chosen the right path. You know, and that any time you, you can hear that uh, is a good thing. And so... You know, getting to know him and getting to hear stories about... I mean, I knew there were writer's rooms and things, but, but it became more real, you know, when all of a sudden I knew a guy who was on, you know, star of a show, and he was talking about how they would write things and whatever. And um, I think at some point, you know, I, I always knew I'd be an entertainer. I just thought it would mostly be acting. And then, you know, like anything, sometimes after a number of years or X amount of years, you're like, gee, it's not happening the way I thought it would. You know, maybe I should put myself in something since no one else is. And then, you know, I started writing a couple of stand-up bits and, and whatnot. And then it all kind of just, you know, I always say I've gone with the door that opened. And I have such a varied resume for, the, for, for that reason. Um, <clears throat> I did a Broadway theater. I was a host of a, a, a kid's show when I was younger. I... You know, I wrote and directed, long before Julie Taymor did, I wrote and directed the, the live-action version of Spider-Man at Radio City Music Hall. <laughs> Let, back let's in... pause here. <laughs> <laughs> let's not pause too long. All right, let's pause briefly here. What the hell? <laughs> right before the movie came out with Tobey Maguire, um, uh, these Broadway producers I knew came to me and said, we were talking about doing a show I was doing someplace else, and they said, as literally, as we were putting our coats on after dinner to leave, they were like, you don't know anything about Spider-Man, do you? And, you know, I was a closeted comic book reader, and I was like... Yeah, I do, actually. And they were like, well, we've got the, the rights to do the first, uh, the country's first theatrical feature-length version of Spider-Man. We've seen some treatments we haven't been crazy about. Would you like to crack at it? And I was like, yeah. And again, you know, again, worlds coming together. It was like, I love comics. I love the Broadway theater. I thought, you know, if I, if I can bring these together, and also knowing how important theater was to me, that I know this would be a lot of a younger generation's foray into theater. Because, you know, you're going to see Spider-Man, you don't care whether it's a movie or theater or whatever. So I just filled that full of everything I thought theater had to offer, and, and it was great. And it, So what, what kind of stuff was in there? It was literally just like, much better than Julie Taymor. But, um, <laughs> no, the, the questions I get asked most are, was it a musical and was it on ice? And neither is true. I don't know why those are the questions, but it was basically, um, like I said before, it, it came out right before the movie did, or in tandem with the movie, but um, since I was taking the same source material, they were very similar up to the point where he becomes Spider-Man, and then after that, I went off in one direction, the movie goes off another but we all use the green goblin and stuff and you know like i said it sold out radio city music hall it toured the country for like 40 cities and stuff but my getting back to your original question my the thing was now i'm a writer and what, what happened too was they said to me after we wrote it and they were like all right now who are we gonna get to direct this and we start brainstorming and no one could come up with something and i just said to them guys i just want you to know i'm completely happy just being the writer but i direct this in my head as i'm writing it if you know i'll throw my name out there and they were like all right great 
And then, like, a month later, they called and said, yeah, we want you to direct it. And I was like, <laughs> you know, and I've never done anything like this before, ever. So I didn't tell anybody that, which I think is key. Uh, you want the confidence of your crew uh, and, your, and your actors. And it was funny, because I remember the lighting designer opening night was like, this, this came out great. How many of these have you done? I was like, well, here's the little secret. Um, but so, you know, I went with the door that opened. I did that, and then I got offered some jobs. Uh, I broke into like Nickelodeon as a voiceover guy, and then again they were like, "You're you're make, coming up with funnier stuff than the writers. Want to be a writer here?" And so that's how it happened. And then I came out here and had written a uh, Family Guy spec, and then um, oddly enough, and then uh, my I wrote a Mad spec. So. <laughs> <laughs> Stalking does not work, Ben. Um, but you know what? The, the weird thing is there. I find maybe you guys disagree with me. There really is no. A plus B equals C. Everybody's going to have their own way. Everybody says, how do you get an agent? Everybody I know got their agent in a weird way. I met mine at a wedding, you know? And it was, I met him, and then I followed up with him, and I said, I have this spec. And he's like, look, I don't, I'm not going to find it funny. I, I've got too many clients. He was with William Morris, and I sent it to him. And then a the week later, he's like, all right, I want you guys to come in, and, and, and you know, I want you to come in and do, you know, sign with us. I was like, great. And then one thing leads to another, and I get Robot Chicken, and then things go on and on. Um, just talking about the stalking bit, I want to go back. I, if anybody follows uh, comics, a good friend of mine is named Jeff Johns, and he's uh, he, like one of the main writers of DC Comics, and he's now the CEO and stuff like that. He came to Los Angeles, and like a lot of us, loved the Richard Donner Superman movie, and Lethal Weapon, and all those movies, and wanted to work for Richard Donner. And he called every single day, <laughs> saying, I want, you have a job, you have a job, you have a job, and they kept saying, no, 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 no. And he said, one day, the phones were ringing, and it was too busy, and Richard Donner picked up. And he's like, he's like, this is Richard Donner. He's like, uh, and this is like, you know, after months of cold calling, and he's like, and he, Richard Donner was basically like, what do you want? And he's like, uh, I, I want a job. And he's like, get this guy a job. And so he, he got a job as like an assistant, you know, as like some PA or something, and then Richard Donner's assistant quit, fired, who knows what, and Jeff stepped up. And, you know, then he was on Lethal Weapon with him. And, you know, it's just an incredible thing. I don't recommend stalking. I'm just saying that anything can happen, you know. So don't be discouraged if it's not becoming the traditional way in which you heard. You know, anything can happen. Uh, BJ, same question about breaking in. I had a lovely conversation with Jonathan Katz mm -hmm. about uh, him discovering a young talent. Named B.J. Novak. <laughs> yep. It was you. Uh, he had such a great things to say about you and, you know, just how he... Your senses of comedy uh, really fit together. They were very complimentary. I, I, that's nice to hear. I didn't know that. I grew up knowing this guy, Jonathan Katz, who created Dr. Katz, professional therapist, and... Um, and then Raising Dad, a one-year-long sitcom on then the WB. Um, but I always felt he thought my brother Jesse was the funny one, so it's nice <laughs> that you, you passed that on. Um, I, you, I, I had an unfair advantage in that even more than anything, I grew up, my, my dad was friends with this guy in Newton who happened to be a comedian with a TV show. So as you were saying before, it never seemed odd to me from the earliest age that you'd make a TV show. Uh, of course. I, I've always pictured it. I didn't need to spend any time. So that was a very big head start. And then um, uh, I wrote, I was a writer for the Harvard Lampoon, and I put on a variety show called The BJ Show with another kid named BJ. And we invited um, Bob Saget to perform. And he came out, 
And coincidentally, I did not know this, Jonathan had a deal at the WB, and he had just cast Bob Saget in that show. So he came out to see it. And it was funny. I put a lot into it, and it was good. And um, there was a, full, a parody of Full House in the show. Um, in which Danny, it's like an R-rated philosophy in which Danny learns about sex from his daughters. He tries to give them the talk and they realize he doesn't know what sex is. And then Uncle Jesse teaches him about sex. Um, So Jonathan was hiring people like that week, coincidentally, and he and Bob conspired to hire me as a staff writer on that show. Um, I want to just step back for one second um, because, uh, again, we have known each other for a long time. In South High School. Yeah. Uh, And I remember even as a youth, uh, your sense of humor seemed very well-defined already. Uh, Like, you were a funny kid. Thank you. But it was also you had a very specific kind of thing that you found funny or you presented as funny. What was the stuff that you were putting in your eyes and ears and brain that was kind of influencing you early I, on? My instinct is to say Mr. Show, but I didn't even watch that until college. So I don't know how I would have... But it's definitely that It's that, that kind of thing. And when I saw that, I was like, that's what I've been <laughs> trying to quote this whole time. You know, um, The Simpsons, early Simpsons, people, some of yeah. you may be too young to know how... Good. The Simpsons was when it's, it was yeah. unbelievable. It was. It was, um, it was back to the days where Sunday night like you that ate dinner or ever, you got around like. Yeah, it was this. You know this. It was like avant-garde. It was incredible. It seemed like the kind of comedy at the time that, like, the real comedy nerds who were into, like, Monty Python and things yeah. like that. It was finally in the mainstream, and we could all access. Yeah. in right. the Simpsons. It was brilliant. So maybe that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then when did when did stand up come along? Was that something that you well, were I started doing in college? The reason I'm less embarrassed telling my incredibly privileged entree <laughs> into comedy writing is because that did not end up forming any direct path to where I am now. Yeah. Um, the show got canceled. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a spec when it was canceled except for my full house. Uh, did you write an episode of the show at least? Yeah, but no one wanted to read my Raising Dad. <laughs> and, um, and I tried to get hired on Reba and I tried to get hired on the Wayne Brady talk show and I submitted packets to absolutely everybody and no one wanted me off that show. Um, so sort of that was it for my skyrocket path. And then... <laughs> Uh, as Raising Dad had wound down, I had started doing stand-up here in L.A. Mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. And as I couldn't get a job year after year, about two years, but it felt like forever, um, towards the end of that sort of two-year unemployment running out of my Raising Dad money, um, I got good at stand-up, good enough that people saw me and were interested in me as a writer. Can and we, that's uh, when... Let, let's go inside for a second yeah. before we get to that next thing, but like, what was going on in stand-up here? I, as I recall, that was around when I left L.A. before coming back, and it yeah. was a really fertile time. Like, it was... Uh, Paul was really coming up, and Patton was hitting hard, and... Uh, well, yes. It was interesting... I, I could talk a whole panel about this if you ever... Yeah. Um, we'll do that in studio. You want to get rid of these guys? And just, um, <laughs> thank you so much. Funny. Um, you can do your own lecture on comedy <laughs> next time Ben invites you. Um, but I, I'd love to talk about it. It was very interesting. Very briefly, the way I saw it, it was 
sort of at the tail end of an incredibly fertile time mm-hmm. that Mr. Show, it was like 2002. So Mr. Show had come out of there, the Uncabaret, Beth Lapidus, lines around the block at the old Largo on Fairfax. I remember waiting in line to see those shows. And that was that Monday night Pat and Paul F. Tompkins, yeah. Karen Kilgariff, and maybe most interestingly, a pre-breakthrough Louis C.K., yeah. who was terrific, but just, just a normal, really good comic. Mm-hmm. He was not personal. He just had great jokes, great observations, great timing. Yeah. He was just a great comics comic. But I was there, and he was one of the first to compliment me because I was doing just one-liners, nothing. Even now, it's not especially deep, but really then there was nothing personal, nothing observational, just a funny joke, next funny joke. And I remember Louie, and I knew who he was, coming up to me, one of the first comics to give me a compliment. And he was like, you're so funny. That's so great. And like a month later, he threw out everything he had ever been as a comic <laughs> and ran so far from the kind of thing I was doing yeah. you know so I sort of had a, a very weird front row seat to what he always talks about in interviews which is when he stopped just trying to tell jokes and be funny and decided to reinvent himself as someone who only talked about his life throughout it every year which is a phase I remained stuck in for a very long time well I want to ask about that and I, I got like... sort of probably the last compliment he gave to someone <laughs> who was antithetical <laughs> to what he then decided to do um, I want to ask you about that just for a second we really should do this some other time but um... Um, why, where do you think that style came from for you? My style, probably Jonathan Katz, largely. Um, a comic named Dan Mintz, who I'm very good friends with, who did comedy before I did. I sort of didn't... I, I thought of it in a very... Now I think of it much broader, but I did not think of it as, what do you want to say? If you had a microphone, if you could make fun of anything you've experienced. I just thought, oh man, if I write a joke, get in front of a microphone, and it's funny enough... I'm a comedian. <laughs> you know, I, it was really that simple. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so you did comedy for a couple of years, uh, stand-up for a couple of years. So here. towards the end of that, as my money and, and patience and parents' patience had been running out, that's when people... You get to a certain point in that scene. The timing is right, your material's good, you have a great seven minutes and nothing beyond. <laughs> um, at least then. Agents would start to ask questions, development executives would be there, you'd get auditions I didn't have a headshot but I got, of course I'll be in a TV show, are you fucking kidding me, you know like, I'd love to be on TV you know, so people would ask you to audition for things and that's when I got on the show Punked and that's when the uh, Greg saw me as a stand-up and thought of me as a writer and actor for The Office, so that all then came out of that second, second wind Interesting um, all right, well, I have a couple more questions for you guys, uh, and then we'll open it up to questions from you all. Um, but briefly, Elaine, tell us about a little bit about Family Guy. We've only had a few writers here from that show, mm-hmm. and they have a huge staff. At least they have the past yeah, couple right, years. Right now they're at 27, I hear. Ridiculous. It's crazy. Were you yeah. the only woman there? How many? I wasn't. They have 27 now. Just like my show. Which is crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you, were, you were not the only woman there? I wasn't. It was me and one other. Um, yeah. But when I was there, it, they were 19. So, yeah. So, 17 wow. guys, including Seth, and then Easy. me and one other. Um, How often do you get hit on? I mean, listen, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, um, I had a. It was a very interesting experience. I would not um, give it back for the world. Like I, I, like I, I, you know, it was. It was my first real job. Like I had had a. So a all staff. the fucking time is your answer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, she, no. she can't give it back. Is what she's saying. <laughs> 
try. Um, no, so it was like uh, my first real job. I mean, I had a, a job before, but it was six episodes, and it was the nicest staff you could ever. It was just like the eight, like eight like nice people just like, oh, my God, you're funny, you're funny. And so I went from that to Family Guy, which was really intimidating. I mean, it was there. They'd all been there. All of them had been there for, like, forever. And I was the only kind of new kid, and I was like, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. And I probably shouldn't admit this, but when I first went on my meeting with Seth, I had not watched a single episode of Family Guy. <laughs> not Always even kidding. And I had, like, this cheat sheet, and I still have it. And I wrote, like, the characters' names. Like, it was, like, Peter Griffin, like, New Englander. Um, <laughs> like, I don't even know what I, like, you know, like, Stewie, Diabolical Infant. Like, which I'd gotten, like, from, from the internet, you know. And so, but by the time I actually started, I had watched every single episode. So, like, in the two weeks or whatever it took for me to get there, I had... And really, like, fell in love with the show. And I was not expecting that at all. I just kind of... Um, but, you know, but when I was there, it was very... It was tough because I'm not... I tend to be kind of an introverted person, which I know doesn't really match up to, I guess, being in a writer's room. But, you know, um, they all pitch in all the characters' voices, which I didn't know I was not warned about that at all. Um, and I had a really hard time pitching because I just didn't want to be... The, I didn't want to be the only one who wasn't pitching in, like, a quagmire voice. But, like, I couldn't... Again, like, it's not something I could naturally do. And So you were so, a greased-up deaf guy? Yeah, that was. Well, um, that's. I think that's a valuable. Uh, that's valuable information for someone who is new to a writer's room. And you were really thrown in the deep end, yeah. obviously. But it's tough to know when to talk, when not to talk. It's you know? it's really tough. And I mean, this is something I've. I think a lot of maybe like staff writers fall into. If you don't, if you don't talk, kind of on your first day, it's going to be really hard to talk. Like, that's... So, when I actually... When I went from Family Guy to Modern Family, I was like, no matter what, I am talking. Day... Like, as soon as I sit down, I'm going to force... And I'm going to talk. Because at Family Guy, it was really hard for me because that whole first day, I don't think I said a word other than, you know, hello. And it got to the point where I was like, whenever I decide to open my mouth, like, it's going to... It's going to be so weird. Everyone's going to be like, what? It, like, what? Like, the, like, my little pipsqueak voice is going to come out and people are like, who are you? You know, so, like, the longer I waited the harder it was for me to just like um, but anyway but you know eventually I, I got fairly comfortable there and I, I loved everybody that I worked with there but it was a really tough room a really really tough room well and I also hear about Family Guy that it is like you imagine a comedy room in you know the 50s uh, uh-huh. through the 70s where it was this competitive kind of alpha male uh, yelling jokes across a room uh- it was competitive just in the sense that like everybody wanted to make the show as really like as funny as it could be. So it was really just it wasn't necessarily personal competition with each other. They all they're all I mean, they're all actually friends and you know. Um, it wasn't as hostile as maybe some people have heard that it is. It really isn't. Um, it's just it's just very intimidating. Really intimidating, yeah. <laughs> as is I guess the modern family room is what I hear. <laughs> I guess that's a perception, but yeah. Is that? Is yeah. that? I don't know. I think I, I've only met a few of you guys from there, and you're all so lovely. Oh, thanks. Oh, you know, Dan- yeah, you know, Danny. Everybody's lovely. Um, but you know, my the two show owners, they're they're like these eight feet tall, really. Um, you know, they just have like this presence, and I think if you don't uh, know them, they can be very intimidating. And they kind of, you know, the tone they set in the room is it's there's a there's a certain um, standard that they set in that room, and you know, you you pitch to that standard. So, uh, thanks, uh, Kevin. Before we take questions from the audience, uh, tell us about the toughest thing you've had to write. 
Oh my god. Um, well, you know, on Robot Chicken, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of things that we should have filters for, and sometimes we don't. And you know, th- that's a tough room in a different way. It's not a very vocal room. In fact, a lot of people think it's just the opposite. They think yelling jokes across the room, blah blah blah. And it really is like five of us sitting quietly all day, coming up with ideas on our own. And then at the end of the day, we pitch them and uh, four people vote on them. And it not, you don't even get your own vote sometimes. So what, what I found, this is a little off topic, but it, what was amazing was the quota of sketches that we had to get in um, was insane. And when I was first like, oh my God, you know? And as, as the new guy in the room, I was like, oh, I, gotta, I gotta, you know, was, and you know, fear is a great motivator. Um, but I was doing it. And then, you know, like on a Tuesday, you realize, I'm done. I'm dry. I've got nothing. And it's Tuesday at 3, you know? And then somehow, with that fear and stuff, you, you just you dig in or you come up with something and you put it out there because you know you have to. And it was just a lesson where, you know, the sketch you worked on or the script you worked on all day that you think is genius gets shot down in a heartbeat. And the thing that you crapped out at, like, 3 minutes to 4, because that's when it was due, is everybody's like, that's great, you know? But the funny thing with Robot Chicken, for me, is riding the line of, but, like what's what's not you know what's funny and what crosses the line? There was just one sketch. This isn't really the most difficult thing I've ever written, but I did one sketch that people thought was funny or the worst thing in the world, which was you know those um, what were they called the dancing man balloon guys outside yeah, of yeah. Out of car washes? Why well, put one outside the grand opening of the epilepsy center? <laughs> And it got such down the line. And that was the most difficult thing to write, but it was the most difficult thing to have written <laughs> when people start asking who wrote that. Sure. So that, there you go. But, you know, I think a deadline makes anything difficult, but also helpful to have that deadline because you just prove yourself, I have to do this. So there's that. Uh, let's. Uh, you guys must have questions. Uh, Elaine, uh, I know in the beginning, family uh, of Modern Family, there are those uh, vignettes speaking to the camera. Uh-huh. Were those originally? It was based on a documentary crew that came to America to interview a family at one point, but then you just dropped it out. What made you drop that out, but leave the the breaking the fourth wall to the keep that in? How, what was that process? Actually, the way it was originally conceived was there was a Dutch ex- foreign exchange student who was coming to and was doing a documentary. I think I think probably as a as a school project, and you'd never see that student, but that was that was who the family was talking to, um, and that pretty quickly fell away. Um, I think the idea was, you know. You know, our the showrunners they didn't they didn't want it to seem like oh our families are the kind of families who would want to be on a reality show let's say you know and it kind of then just became like the interviews and the documentary style is just um, you know it's 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 just something you know that's part of this, it's the structure of the show. Was that role ever cast that exchange student that was who was not, doing that? Thank that God. Was not, Could you know, imagine? That that? I'm going to be huge. <laughs> um, I'm curious about that on the office too because this must have been a discussion that you guys had. What is the role of this? What the fuck is a modern family trying to do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How dare they? It came up a lot, actually. Well, we put a lot... <laughs> we put a lot, a lot, way too much energy into every rule of the documentary. What, what they're able to film, what they're not, when you would see them, from which camera angle. So when you're directing an episode, 
you have to be conscious of that all the time that the second camera could never have caught the first camera because the rule is they don't sh- the crew doesn't show the cameras and who has what relationship to the crew etc um, the lesson from the office and modern family is nobody cares yeah. <laughs> they, they just care about the characters and uh, it's just a completely different you know not completely different but on that level just a different approach comedy let's talk about comedy for a minute um, <laughs> yeah, I thought let's, let's talk some more about it what uh, what are you guys finding funny these days? What's the stuff that you are watching on television or in movies or in you know on people doing stand up that you say, I wish I wish that was me, <laughs> or I wish I could get away with that or. I don't know. Honestly, I, I, Modern Family is one of the things I enjoy watching now. And aside from that, there are not enough hours in the day to watch all that's out there. You know, I had a flight for the first you know for. New York to LA, I thought, oh great, six hours and I was paralyzed with my choices. I was like, I have to catch up on Game of Thrones or Homeland or Breaking Bad and you know, I think I fell asleep for four of it. So it was like, well so you know, sadly I don't get to watch I don't know about you guys, but you know, we do work such long hours that sometimes when you get home it's you know, I'll veg out to something I T vote like that, but I don't get to but watch But for your show, much. too, you have to mine pop culture. Uh, well, that's true. That's true. I mean, I see a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of movies. Um, and I because, always forget people still see movies. Yeah, I know. Well, because it skews younger, too, I see a lot of movies I wouldn't normally go see. Uh, and I, because of my schedule, I usually go to like the Americana at like 9 a.m. So <laughs> then I started realizing that's looking a little weird. That <laughs> <laughs> middle-aged guy seeing Shrek at 9.30, and I'm like, Ugh. But, um, but yeah, so television, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on. I, I watch a lot, like I said. I catch up on television, but I watch a lot of movies. How about you guys? I watch Louie. I think it's really funny. Me too. <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> Hi. Um, are writers who come up through a performance background, either in improv or stand-up, looked at or treated differently in the room than those who um, don't, who bypass that? Um, I think on The Office it was pretty egalitarian, and, and also... Paul Lieberstein, the other writer-actors uh, besides me were Paul Lieberstein, who had never acted before and is, is brilliant at it, and Mindy, who had acted but didn't enter the show expecting to act. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty low-key, the difference between them. I have found, as someone who did not expect to be um, or didn't think of himself as an actor, but just I always, since you knew me, thought of myself as a writer, um, I've learned a lot of very good things from being a performer, and, and I think the most important is a relationship with the audience. Um, I think I was a much more um, pre- not, not pretentious writer, but um, sort of um, uh, proud and, and inward mm-hmm. writer um, before I had to, or was used to bombing on stage when something was of no use to an audience and, uh, and doing well when it was something they had use for. And, uh, and that, I think, has carried very well into the writing I've done since then. Yeah, I mean, this, this has come up before, and I, I know I've said it before, too, but there's so much value, even if you're not a writer-performer, in putting your writing in front of people. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to learn how to write for that audience. That's what we're trying to do. Otherwise, you can become precious about it. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to ask this about pitching, too. And, you know, uh, BJ, I'm sure you've pitched stuff, and Kevin, you've pitched stuff, and you both have these performance backgrounds. Does it make it easier for you? 
I, I find it helps a little bit because they're so used to a lot of times. I, I, I know pitches are sold this way too, where writers come in and they say, "Here's my idea." And they just read it, and you know that's a norm for a lot of people. But I find sometimes it it relieves that or makes the room a little more interesting if you could be like, "Look, this is going to be a little more animated." Um, you know, when I came out, you must ago, be a great pitcher, by the way. <laughs> I mean, a Broadway background, you well, do fifty yeah. voices. Exactly. You see all the shows I have on the air. But you know, it's funny when I first came out here ages ago, agents didn't want to hear that I did both. They were like, "Well, what are you, an actor or a writer?" I'm like, "Well, I do both." They're like, "You." you got to focus on one. And it's like, now, you almost have to do both. You don't have to do both, but it doesn't hurt at all. I find it only helps. That's my, that's my take. Yeah, it helps you define who you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elaine, have you had much pitching experience? I had opportunity to pitch your own stuff? Um, no. I mean, I, I think I'm now getting to the point where maybe studios want to hear if I have ideas. They're always looking for, you know. But I have not... Um, I've not ever had a pitch meeting really? other than to pitch myself. Yeah, for a, sh- for a oh, job. It's the worst. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you guys think are the pros and cons or strengths of like digital or YouTube for comedy that you're seeing more and more on TV, like sketch-heavy shows, for breaking that out into more bite-sized content? Is it a, a good thing or hurting what is a traditionally TV-based medium? Well, I'll say... Because, because you know, it's, it's very direct to what I do. Um, the culture is changing, and so it's, it, it sounds like a cop-out answer, but it is twofold. You know, years ago, you didn't have these venues to, to put your work out there. Now, there's so many ways to do things. You can put it on YouTube, you can get a website, you can do whatever. The twofold being everybody else does, too. So you're, you're, you know, the culture and the competition is twice as great, and your stuff has to rise to the top even more. But I think it's a great climate to, when people ask me what do I do, I say just get your work out there. You know, if you're a writer, write. If you're a performer, perform. And what was a huge realization to me was if I'm looking to get an agent or I'm looking to get a job, it doesn't have to be an opus or this, you know, huge screenplay. They just want to see your flavor. They want to, if it's done in a five-page sketch, then that's what it takes. You know, sometimes it's better because they don't want to. They always oh, my weekend. I got to read these 120 pages. But as long as it captures, we were talking before, knowing your voice and finding out what's different from you than other people, it doesn't matter how long it is. And I'd say get everything you can out there. Um, very quickly, uh, starting with Kevin, and we'll go down the line. What are you watching on television, if anything? Uh, I know you don't have a lot of time. Uh, but um, is there stuff that's getting you inspired? Is there stuff that you're talking to your writers or writer friends about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, we all have m- different interests, too. And like I said, Modern Family, um, you know, Game of Thrones. And, it, you know, a lot of things that are just different, too. Breaking Bad, I got caught up in it. There's, there's a lot of... We are, I feel, and I, I'm not... It's been said before, but it's weird how the culture changes. I think we are almost in a, another golden age of television right now, and the movies are kind of suffering. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, everybody wants to be in the movies, and TV is eh. right now all the good stuff, all a lot of the great actors are all shooting to do television because that's where we are right now. Elaine, what are you watching? What's the room talking about? Um, I mean, I guess the show I'm currently obsessed with is Homeland, kind of like probably everyone else, but um, but that is. That's you know, and that's the show that we come in on Monday mornings and we we talk about. Um, but yeah, I also am not. I'm probably watching less TV now than I kind of ever have, unfortunately. But yeah. 
Uh, are you are you watching the movies at all? The movies? I am. I watch the movies when I can, but um, yeah. I mean, Do I you don't look at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Yeah, I mean, I you know I I love watching movies and television. I just don't get to do it as much as I wish I could. Yeah. Happens. Uh, Bj, anything you're watching, getting inspired ben, by? Ben, I actually don't own a TV. <laughs> wow. No, I'm just kidding. You're pretty cool. You're pretty cool. Just being that guy. Yeah. Uh, I, as I said, Louis, I think uh, yeah. is really really exciting. Uh, Girls, I think is great. Um, Mad Men, you know, you forget about when it's gone sometimes, but it's it's unbelievable. Um, I agree about the golden age of television. Well, then it's settled. Yeah. Uh, please give a round of applause to our guests. Elaine Crow and BJ Novak. Thanks to everyone in Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to 826 LA. Now leaving Nerdist.com.